Well, Zechariah. What, what can you say about Zechariah? Um, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Zechariah, began by saying, Zechariah is one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament. So why on earth did I decide to, to preach on it? Well, others make plenty uh, of other encouraging comments, uh, such as Zechariah is the most messianic of all the writings of the Old Testament, or the key to unlocking the truth contained in Zechariah is the Messiah, Jesus. Someone else said at least 33 portions of Zechariah are quoted in about 50 different places in the New Testament, many of them are in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the consensus is that Zechariah is full of Christ, and therefore it must be full of encouragement, mustn't it? In fact, one writer said, Zechariah is the Barnabas of the Old Testament, a true son of encouragement. So Boyce might well be right in saying that Zechariah is a difficult book, uh, but with every reason uh, to expect it to be worth the effort of wrestling with it. Uh, we should expect to find plenty of encouragement uh, because we'll see a lot of Christ in it. But with that expectation, I started a series uh, on Zechariah way back in 1 BC, that's one year before COVID. And we managed to preach seven sermons before we ground to a halt for reasons that we're all too familiar with. But we're now going to pick up from where we left off. Uh, time prohibits uh, me attempting a summary of what we, we covered. Um, if you are really keen, uh, those seven sermons are still available to listen to on the church website. Um, but in, one, in Zechariah 1 verse 7, we were told the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. That expression comes a few times throughout the book. This is the first word of the Lord uh, that, came, uh, that, that came to Zechariah. And that first word consisted of eight very strange, very weird visions that Zechariah saw in the company of an angel during one momentous night. Now we've already considered uh, the first seven of those visions, so this morning we're going to look at the last one. Do you find it frustrating when a book or a film or television series or whatever doesn't come to a satisfactory conclusion? Throughout all the twists and turns of the story, you've been wondering how it's going to end, how will the various strands of the plot be resolved, and it comes as a huge disappointment if it doesn't work out that way. We like conclusive endings, don't we? In fact, preferably, we like happy endings. Well, today we're coming to an ending of sorts. We still have a, have a long way to go until the end of Zechariah, but we are coming to the end of the visions. The, the, the final vision is the, the passage that we have read, Zechariah 6, 1-8, and we'll see that it brings the series to a resounding climax. Superficially, it has something in common with the first vision, uh, because they both involve horses going throughout the earth. Uh, but it's very clear that the horses in the eighth vision 
were engaged in a very different activity from those in the first. Uh, and the progression that, that we've seen throughout the visions has been such that the final one culminates in something far more fulfilling, far more wonderful than anything that we saw at the beginning. But the passage falls into four sections. Uh, verses 1 give us what we could consider to be part 1, and that sets the scene for us. Uh, verses 4 to 6 provide a short uh, interlude in which we have a sort of Q&A session between Zechariah and the angel. Um, we saw that in most of the, uh, the visions, that there's usually a point when Zechariah turns to the angel and says, what's that mean? What's that all about? And the, uh, the angel uh, answers and they get into a, a Q&A session. Uh, and, and those conversations help us to understand uh, something of what the vision is about. So we've been given an explanation uh, verse 7 returns uh, to part 2 of the vision where we see the action uh, and then finally verse 8 the Lord announces the conclusion so we're going to consider the scene um, the explanation the action and the conclusion that's S-E-A-C C-A-C when I saw that I thought that's an acronym for something and I couldn't think what it was so I, I did the sensible thing and Googled it. And it turns out that SEAC stands for the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chiefs of Staff Committee. And his role <laughs> is to contribute to the policy and decision-making for the British Armed Forces. Now, this last uh, vision is very militaristic. So I think there's a happy coincidence there. It's quite, quite appropriate. But let's begin by looking at the scene. Uh, except for in verses 1 to 3 where we read Again I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze the first chariot had red horses the second black horses the third white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses all of them strong so Zechariah looked up again and this time the first thing he saw was four chariots. Now, compared to modern-day armaments, chariots seem very primitive, don't they? Very, very puny. But they really were the weapons of mass destruction in Zechariah's day. Uh, arm, the armies of the superpowers uh, of the time were equipped with chariots, uh, and they seemed invincible because of their chariots. So chariots were symbolic of power and military might. But you notice that Zechariah didn't see uh, uh, he didn't see mass ranks of chariots. He saw four chariots. Just four chariots. Did that mean that he was seeing a puny little army that could only muster four chariots? Well you've got to remember that this is a vision. And so it's highly symbolic. And we've come across the number four in previous uh, visions. Back back in chapter 1, verse 18, we read about four horns that scattered Judah. And it spoke of the fact that the people of God are confronted by opposing powers on every hand. That there's opposition everywhere, from every point of the compass. 
but in that vision too, there were four craftsmen to, to throw down the horns. And that showed that the power of God is at work everywhere to, to protect his people, to defeat their enemies. So the number four conveys this idea of uh, omnipresence, of universality, of being everywhere. And therefore the four chariots suggests a, a powerful force that is operating everywhere. It's not a, a, an army of any earthly power which has limitations. You know, if it overstretches itself, uh, it, it goes too far, or, or, or it fights on too many fronts at once. These chariots represent a force that can encompass uh, and subdue the whole world. Well, the next thing that Zechariah noticed was that there were uh, was where the four chariots were coming from. Uh, we're told they came out from between two mountains, and these mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, bronze is a, a man-made alloy, so there are no literal mountains uh, of bronze. That immediately suggests more symbolic imagery here for us to decipher. But mountains are enormous. Mountains are enduring. That they stand for stability. Bronze, well that's a, an alloy. And compared to modern titanium alloys, it's, it's quite soft. But in Zechariah's day, it represented great strength. Um, there's a good reason for the Bronze Age to supersede the Stone Age. It was considered to be very strong uh, in its day. So the four chariots were seen coming out from a place that was great, both in terms of its size uh, and also in terms of its enduring strength. Uh, is it significant that there were two uh, of these mountains of bronze? Well, yes, there's almost certainly an, an allusion to the temple here. You remember that the immediate reason for the visions uh, was to encourage the people in, re in rebuilding the temple. You know, not long after Nehemiah that we think about with the, with the wall. Well, the temple was then rebuilt as well. Uh, and the visions in the, in the short term were to encourage in, in the rebuilding of the temple. In the long term, it was pointing to Christ. It was pointing to a, a far better, a far greater temple that was to come. Uh, we've seen that the visions uh, already have contained a great deal of temple imagery. But one striking feature of Solomon's temple had been two bronze pillars that were told about in 1 Kings 7, 13-15. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work of bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze, 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. So these pillars were each 18 cubits high, that's about 27 feet, 
uh, and 12 inches in, uh, 12 cubits in circumference. That's about 18 feet around. So, so they were massive. And then uh, 1 Kings 7 verse 21 we read, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. So these massive pillars stood at the vestibule or the portico of the temple. Now back in the sixth vision, uh, we saw that, that very strange image of a flying scroll. And when we uh, were thinking about that, we noticed that the dimensions of the flying scroll were exactly the same as those of the portico of the temple. And, and that's where the public reading of the law took place. So the flying scroll had represented the law going out to judge Israel. Well now here in the eighth vision, judgment is seen to be extending beyond Israel as this worldwide power comes out from between these pillars. Um, continuing in 1 Kings 7.21 we read, He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. So these pillars were set up to the north and to the south sides of the portico, and Solomon gave them names. Uh, one was Jachin, which means he establishes, and the other Boaz, which means in him is strength. So they represented stability, like a mountain, uh, and strength, like the bronze in Zechariah's day. They represented the, the stability and the strength of God's kingship. Uh, we see the stability of the mountain and the strength of bronze. Now Solomon's temple had those mighty pillars, but the temple that Zerubbabel was building was, was always going to be far inferior to Solomon's temple, and they would have no such thing. The point seems to be that these four chariots weren't coming out of any earthly temple. Even Solomon's lavish temple with its impressive bronze pillars at the entrance was puny compared to the temple from which the four chariots came in this vision. That temple had mountains of bronze at its entrance. The imagery is surely intended to convey the fact that this mighty worldwide power was coming out from the presence of God himself. God was sending them out. Of course, chariots are pretty useless without horses. Uh, these chariots certainly weren't going to be useless. Uh, being, they were being sent out to wage war. So in verses 2 to 3, Zechariah goes on to tell us about the horses he saw that were drawing the four chariots. Uh, each chariot was pulled by a number of horses. We're not told how many, but we're told that each chariot was pulled by horses of uh, a different colour. Red, black, white and dappled. Now back in the first vision, uh, we saw horses. Uh, they were reporting on a reconnaissance mission throughout the earth. And at the time we wondered if they were to be equated with the four horses of the Apocalypse in uh, Revelation 6. And we decided they probably weren't. And that was partly because there are only three colours of horse mentioned there, but there are four in Revelation 6. And partly because some of the colours are different. Uh, they were red, brown and white, compared with white, red, black and pale. Um, 
they were also returning from a, a reconnaissance mission, and that seemed very different from what the horses uh, in Revelation 6 were doing. They were riding out to exercise judgment. Uh, but there's much more similarity between the horses here in the 8th vision and those of Revelation 6. The four colours are the same, if you take dapple to be equivalent to pale. Um, and the horses are, are going out pulling chariots, they're going to war. So in, in Revelation 6, uh, and Zechariah uh, 6, we have horses going out on the offensive. In the first vision spoke of intelligence being gathered. This eighth vision begins by showing an army of the Lord preparing to go and take action. Judgment was going to be executed. Well, having given the colours of the horses, verse, eight, verse 3 ends by saying, all of them strong. Sounds very ominous, doesn't it? All of them strong. So, uh, the colours don't really make much difference if you're confronted by these horses. What colour they were would be the last thing on your mind. These horses were all equally powerful. It's telling us that there are no weaknesses in this army. It isn't vulnerable in, in any way. So the scene that is set in these first few verses seems to be that of a powerful, worldwide assault force assembling in readiness to be dispatched. So what are the explanation? In verse 4, Zechariah turned to the angel and he asked, What are these, my Lord? Now we've become used to these question, uh, questions from Zechariah. Um, most of the visions he's turned to the angel uh, for a word of explanation. And you notice he still addresses the angel as my Lord. Even though they've shared together and seeing all these amazing visions, Zechariah still uses that term of respect. He's sitting in awe of the angel. Why? Because angels are from God. They're sinless. They're holy. But Zechariah is a sinful human being. But the fact is, you don't get chummy with an angel. As usual, the angel answers the question and gives a bit more information beside. That always seems to be the case. Zechariah would ask a question, the angel would answer it, and say a bit more. That's uh, the case here as well. He always seems to give that extra information. The question was, what are these? And the angel answers in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he goes on to, if you like, answer the unasked question, where are they going? So what are these? Well, in ESV, the angel says in verse 5, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And that doesn't really seem to answer the question, what are these, does it? Uh, but the NIV says, these are the four spirits of heaven going out and standing before the Lord of the whole world. Now that's not, doesn't only seem better in that it does answer the question, uh, but it's also a more accurate translation. So these four horse-drawn chariots are said to be the four spirits of heaven could equally be translated as the four winds of heaven. Difficult to be sure of exactly what's meant by these spirits or winds of heaven. <laughs> what is clear is that they've been presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth and they were now going out from his presence. They were from God 
being sent out by God. That seems to corroborate the idea that the chariots coming out from between the two mountains of bronze indicated that they were um, coming from being with God himself. Notice that God is referred to as the Lord of the whole world. The earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. He made it. He controls it. He has the right to do with it as he pleases. He also has the power to do with it as he pleases. He's the Lord of the whole world and he's sending out four chariots is a, a demonstration of that fact. It pictures God's power coming to bear on the whole world. Well then in verse 6 the angel goes on to give a bit more detail about what God's power is going to do. Uh, we read the chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. So the chariot with black horses would be going towards the north country, and the ESV says that the white horses would go after them. According to the NIV, the chariot with the white horses would be going to the west, uh, but the, the Hebrew uh, can actually mean, mean either. So, um, sorry, lost my place. Yes, yeah, so it, 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 it would be following after the, the, the black horses, as in the ESV. The one with dappled horses would be going south, uh, and the one with red horses isn't mentioned at all. So, what are we to make uh, of all that? But it's probably best understood in terms of the history and geography uh, of the land. Historically, enemies had attacked from the north or the south. That was because there was desert to the east and there was the Mediterranean Sea to the west. So the enemy to the south had been Egypt, but by this time, Egypt's power had greatly dwindled. It was no longer a serious threat. The real threat, more recently, had been from the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, both from the north. So it seems that two chariots were to be dispatched to the north, where, where wickedness and opposition to God and his people was the greatest. Another was to be dispatched to the south, where the lesser enemy remained. And then presumably that the fourth chariot, that wasn't mentioned, would be available to go throughout the rest of the world. The point seems to be that the power of God is such that it can deal with the world's situation, whatever it may be. He's only caught napping. He's never uh, lacking resource. He's never short of resource. When he chooses to unleash his power, it will prevail and his purposes will be accomplished. So after that interlude, we return to the uh, vision itself in verse 7 and we see the action. In verse 7 we read, When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. Again, the power of the horses is mentioned and now we're told that they went out uh, 
when they went out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. The NIV says they were straining to go throughout the earth. They hadn't been sent yet, but they were eager to go. They were just waiting for the word. If you like, verse 1 was on your marks. They came out and took up their positions. Then verses 5 to 6 was some background information provided by the commentary team. Uh, and then verse, uh, set, beginning of verse 7, we have get set. Their, their muscles are tense. Their concentration is focused and they're straining to be off. And at the end of verse 7, we finally have go. We mean go, patrol the earth. And off they went. Horses thundered and the chariots sped on their way. And we're not told who actually gave the word to go, but surely it must have been God himself. They've come out from standing before the presence of the Lord of all the world, and surely he would have been the one who gave the order. So the power of God is unleashed. And next we see the results. In verse 8, the Lord announces, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This is the Lord telling Zechariah that the outcome. He's effectively saying, mission accomplished. And it isn't a George Bush kind of mission accomplished. What was the ultimate purpose of the exercise? Was it to, to zap the wicked? Was it to show men who's boss? Was it to show off his power? Was it to vent his frustration? No, what was purposed and what was achieved was to set my spirit at rest in the north country. Well, the NIV says, given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, I know it only mentions that the Lord's spirit was given rest in the north, but that represented the place of greatest wickedness. So I think we can take it that if the Lord's spirit had rest there, then he had rest uh, everywhere else. His rest was established throughout the whole world. And you might ask, isn't God at rest anyway? Aren't we told that he rested after he completed his work of completion? Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So yes, God rested after he had completed the work of creation. And Adam and Eve and all their offspring could have shared in that rest. But of course, they didn't. But the fall came. Men rebelled against their creator. Sin entered the world and the perfect creation was spoiled. Adam and Eve were banished from that rest because of their disobedience. Now, God could have continued in his rest. He could have continued at rest um, simply by washing his hands of the whole thing. And he could have destroyed all that he had made there and then. He could have given it all up as a bad job. But instead... He set about doing some more work. He set about the work 
of recreation. And he'll only have rest again once that new work is completed. And of course the centrepiece of that great work was sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to redeem sinners. And that work continues uh, as the message goes out, as the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and they come to faith in Christ. And the work will eventually be brought to completion when the final judgment comes upon all who remain rebellious against him. It's the execution of that judgment that is being depicted in this final vision. And then the Lord will be at rest. And as we, uh, as we see in Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. And as the NIV puts it, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the Holy One. Now, of course, the Lord is king of the whole earth. He always has been. Uh, he always has been. He always will be. But the day is to come, referred to here as that day, when he'll be undisputed king. He'll be universally acknowledged <coughs> as the king. His enemies will have been vanquished. Wickedness will have been removed. And he will then be at rest Back in the first vision, when the horses reported back, they said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Simple men were complacent in presuming that all was well, uh, that they had rest and peace. While the reality was that their maker was far from being at rest, yet as he worked towards restoring his creation and redeeming sinners, they chose to ignore him and enjoy what they thought was rest and peace. But what really matters isn't what men mistakenly think to be uh, rest and, and peace. What really matters is that God should be at rest. How can we have real rest all the time that God is not at rest? And the wonderful conclusion to the series of visions that uh, Zechariah saw is that God will one day be at rest. He's working to that end. And what's more, he's given the promise of entering into his rest to all who come to him through faith in Christ. That's the promise of sharing with him in his rest. Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. You see, the promise of entering his rest still stands. That's, that's the good news that that's referred to. The good news of the gospel, you can enter God's rest, but it only benefits you if you receive it by faith. We're told that only those who have believed enter that rest. Well, maybe who believe look forward to uh, entering that rest. And if you don't believe, well, might you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and have uh, the assurance that you too will enter his rest.
Amen.